Hey there, and welcome to Now a Mem. This is a new podcast series to discuss what it's like to be a man in the 21st century, and how feminist issues are relevant to the lives of men and boys. It's been set up by researchers in the Centre for Research into Violence and Abuse at Durham University in the UK. My name is Dr. Stephen Burrell, and I'm a Leverhulme Early Career Fellow. The podcast is mainly hosted by myself and Sandy Ruxton, who's an Honorary Research Fellow. Hi, Sandy. Hi, Stephen. So each episode is going to be based around a conversation with an expert. That could be a practitioner, an activist, an academic, someone who's got an in-depth knowledge of the issues we're going to be looking at. And we'll be asking them about their work and the research they're doing, as well as exploring their own personal experiences of doing work related to masculinity and gender equality and how they got involved in the area. Enjoy the episode. So in this episode, we're focusing on fatherhood and men caring for children. We're talking to Dr. Martin Robb, who is a senior lecturer in the School of Health, Wellbeing and Social Care at the Open University. Yes, I'm particularly pleased that we're interviewing Martin because I've got a long uh, association with Martin going back probably 35 years. We worked together on a project with disadvantaged adults and young people in Basildon in the 1980s. In fact, he gave me my first job, I'll, I'll, I'll admit it. So it's very nice to have had this sort of parallel career going on at the same time. And, but of course, bringing it up to date, Martin is the author of a book which was published in 2020, entitled Men, Masculinities and the Care of Children, Images, Ideas and Identities. And actually, his academic research focuses in particular on issues related to gender, identity and care, and has a recent focus on fatherhood and the development of caring masculinities. Welcome, Martin, to the Now and Men podcast. Very pleased to talk to you today. We'll come on to your research in a minute, but I can't help asking you first about your son James's recent appearance on The Voice. For those who don't know, The Voice is is a reality TV show. It's a singing competition. But I wanted to ask you, what was that experience like? And what was it like for you as a parent, as a father? Thanks, Sandy. And uh, thank you for inviting me. I'm really happy to take part in this conversation. That's an interesting one, isn't it? I've not really had a chance to reflect on that experience in the light of the fact that fatherhood is one of my interests and research areas. But I suppose that is quite interesting that for my first ever TV appearance, I wasn't appearing as me, but as the father of my son in a kind of supporting role. I mean, obviously, I can say all the cliched things, but I suppose I ought to say them. We were very proud as parents. It was an incredibly joyful and and proud moment. But I thought I might feel some of the sort of envy that it was him and not me, that actually your children are doing things that you perhaps dreamed of doing and never got round to doing or never succeeded at doing, but I didn't at all. I just felt a great sense of pride. Bits of our interviews were included in the programme, the first programme, and that experience was quite interesting, being asked to talk about what your son was like growing up, and it was very hard to get away from the kind of cliched things they wanted you to say and to say something really genuine. It felt to me, because I saw it as well, that there was like a narrative that they, they wanted to impose almost, that there's the supportive family singing along in the background. And it, it just felt like there's a particular sort of way of presenting the families in a show like that. But it, I, I suppose it made me think also about the, the wider work that you've done, your research work you've done, and in particular, your book you know, men, masculinities and the care of children. 
And in the first chapter of that book, you explore how fatherhood and men's care of children has been portrayed in popular culture. So in films, in TV, in news over the years. And I just wondered how you thought that fathers were represented in popular culture now and whether that's changed over time. I, I think it's very interesting and very complex. I thought you were going to ask me how fathers were represented on The Voice for a second, and I was just preparing my answer. But, <laughs> well, let, let's spin off that. I think it is interesting the way that those programmes, as you say, present families and present the, the kind of a gendered way of presenting parental support. And it's interesting that they, they're looking for stories about fathers and and not only sons fathers and daughters as well which kind of play to some of the things not so much stereotypes but in the book I talk about the way that um, popular culture is a kind of a way of working out some of these um, things that are going on in the culture and it's, and it's very complex it's it's not as simple as saying you know that we're replacing one ideal of fatherhood the sort of the 50s ideal of the provider the the disciplinarian the kind of distant figure with a more caring figure it's i think it's much more complicated i think there are lots of competing um, ideas of the good father around at the moment i think there are lots of tensions in those in those popular images what what i was quite fascinated by in writing the book was to find just how how much popular culture seems to still be I was going to say obsessed, but sort of taken up with this notion of exploring and maybe repairing father-child relationships or, or concerned about what's happening to them or that something needs to happen uh, around them for society to move forward. I think what when you look at popular culture, I think it's probably going down a sort of blind alley to look for stereotypes or, or ideas. I, I think I'm more interested in seeing the processes at work and to see those stories in popular culture as kind of sites where where competing ideas can be worked out and worked through mm. and you can't really reduce any one program or show or song to a particular ideal of fatherhood i think there are all sorts of tensions in in play within any one example from popular culture and that's what makes it so so fascinating but as i say in the book it's it's very easy if you're researching a particular issue to begin to see it everywhere i'm wondering if you could give one or two examples because you you do give quite a lot in the book i make a talk about harry potter for example yeah <laughs> i did write an article where we had a kind of a, a university celebration of some anniversary around harry potter recently and everybody from different research backgrounds wrote something about harry potter and their research interests which was quite funny but i wrote something about um harry potter and fatherhood and i i think the idea of searching for the the lost or departed father is a trope that you find not just in harry potter but in a lot of other contemporary popular culture and this idea that some sort of healing needs to take place that some sort of breach has happened that may be a response to the increased phenomenon of supposed absent fatherhood or it may be something i don't know perhaps need some of my psychoanalytic colleagues to come in and talk about what's going on uh, in the unconscious of the culture i just find it interesting hmm. that the culture continues to be fascinated by the figure of the father and by a concern about the absence of the father whether that's real or imagined from children's lives and what and what that might supply we've talked before in our own research haven't we sandy about male role models and sometimes that manifests itself as a kind of a, a moral panic about 
absent fathers and a need for for male role models. But I think it's also the culture kind of going through a process of change in how it thinks about those parental roles. Yeah, that's fascinating. Thank you, Martin. Uh, one of the things we're interested in with this pon- podcast is also exploring the like people's personal kind of backgrounds and, and stories and how they got involved in, in looking at these kinds of issues. First of all, could we perhaps go back to, to your own childhood? How would you describe your parents' approach to parenting? So I'm a 1950s child, so I grew up in the 60s and 70s. Um, I think the 70s is the decade that I regard as formative for me. Born in London, but we moved out to Essex when I was very young. Grew up in a medium-sized town in Essex, went to the local grammar school, then went on to Cambridge. First person in my family to go to university. Came from a very working-class family in, in London, although my parents kind of moved away from that for a bit. In terms of my experience of being parented, I suppose it was fairly conventional for the time in that my dad went out to work, my mum didn't work after my brothers and I were born. Um, So my mother was quite a dominant figure in my childhood, or a present figure I should say, but a very emotionally uh, loving childhood. My parents were devout Methodists, so a lot of it revolved around the, the church. I have very happy memories of my childhood. And what one of the things that sort of my childhood imbued in me was a passion for sort of justice and and for equality that was kind of in the in the air my parents weren't very political but it was part of their kind of religious um raison d'etre they they weren't very straight they were quite laid back it was quite not exactly a permissive childhood but i i didn't feel restricted in any ways when i've thought about this before and and, and i've written about it for an open university course actually and thought about what the influences were in terms of say masculinity I think it was important that I was growing up in the 60s and 70s and just very much aware as a young teenager being into music I was very much the David Bowie and Mark Boland generation Uh, that was when I was sort of 15 16 so there were kind of new new ways of being a boy new ways of being a man that were kind of in circulation I, I wrote about this in in the Open University course and I wrote that actually that was kind of intention with in a kind of attention relationship with, with the fact that at the same time I was a member of the boys brigade and you know marching up and down the church hall every Friday night and wearing a, a sort of a semi-military uniform my my sort of long hair was sprouting out from underneath my boys brigade cap <laughs> to sort of uh, demonstrate or to kind of illustrate the kind of uh, the contradictions and tensions that were were going on in terms of defining how I saw myself as a young man but yeah, so very much a 60s and 70s childhood with some of those newer ideas about about gender and, and particularly about masculinity coming into play and making it possible to imagine different ways of being a man, mm, I suppose, Yeah, which I think a lot of us found quite liberating. Yeah. And would, would you say there was any particular person or any particular, you know, things which did, you know, really influence you when you were growing up in terms of your understanding about being a man? Well, it's interesting because I I think that only came later for me. I've done quite a lot of thinking about this since I started researching this area. And I can't remember feeling any pressures when I was young to be a particular kind of man, except for arguments with my dad about the length of my hair and some hints that he was worried about effeminacy because of that. But given that everyone was doing that at the same time. But apart from that, I... I been trying to think of the reason for that and I suppose 
although I didn't come from a very privileged background, I suppose I was privileged in that going to an all-boys grammar school, and, and again, from the teachers, there were some traditional masculine stuff, and there was the cadet force and so on. But among us as boys, I never felt any pressure to conform. I wasn't very sporty, but there were other ways in which you could get by. If you were an intellectual or you were into music, as my friends and I were, that was acceptable. So I didn't feel pushed into conventional masculinity. I didn't really start to reflect on it until adulthood, until I suppose I found myself at university, I found myself reading, political reading and and reading sort of feminist literature and so on. But that was very much at the intellectual level. And I think for me, the sort of personal reflection only really happened with fatherhood. That's quite late. I didn't become a father until I was in my mid-30s. It's quite a transformative experience in my 30s. And it, it just opened up a dialogue between my intellectual side and my sort of emotional, personal side, which led to me becoming much more engaged in thinking about what did it mean to be a man. I'm particularly interested in the whole area of of men and care, which has framed my academic career since. Oh, that's really interesting. Can you perhaps describe then the process since you became a father? What then led you to actually kind of take those issues into your work? Well, I think um, I've been very lucky to work where I do at the OU. It's been a very warm and helpful environment. And one thing that's kind of really helped is I think a lot of my colleagues have seen that sort of intimate connection between their own personal experiences as as women, as disabled people, um, as campaigners and so on, and their academic work. That was kind of allowed, that was kind of in the, in the air, if you like. So I was working on open university courses and I was trying to find my way into this to writing about care and and what could my research area be and I became a a dad around the same time. Helen, my wife and I had had agreed in theory that we would share the care of any children that came along Um, so we were both committed to that Um, but I think it was the actual experience. Helen had a, a not exactly a more demanding job than me, but a more nine-to-five job. The OU allows quite a lot of flexibility. I think the academic life generally does allow more flexibility for parents. So I found myself doing a lot of the day-to-day hands-on care during the week. And that was new. I think it did strike me that I was being asked to, to draw on parts of myself that I hadn't drawn on before. Just the facts of physical, hands-on, intimate care, day-to-day, and that sense of others being very dependent on you. I suppose it made me reflect that, in a sense, as men, we keep that stuff distant and we're not quite prepared for it. We don't see it as part of our identity. And it's not exactly a threat to our identity, but it makes us maybe think of our masculine identity in different ways and kind of expand um, how we understand ourselves as men. So that was... That was quite personally transformative and I wanted to write about that and I guess there are two things. I wanted to write about men as fathers and involved fathers because I was very much aware that I wasn't alone, that there's a whole generation of men who wanted to be more involved in their children's care. But then a, a second thing that happened, and I got into conversation with a couple of young male childcare workers at my daughter's nursery. And I just found that fascinating because they were kind of rarities, still are to some extent, but very much then in the early 90s were were unusual. And it just made me think about what is it that leads a young man to decide to 
go against all the kind of conditioning, all the kind of prejudice that's there about men working with children and to say, this is what I want to do. I'm a man, but I'm also a carer. This is my skill set. This is how I see myself. So those were some of the things that were going on for me that got me into thinking more academically, intellectually about those issues. And thinking about that academic work now a bit, I, I know in your book, you outline some of the sort of strengths and the weaknesses of the competing discourses and ideas about fatherhood, so the conservative, the progressive, and so on. How do you think you would sum up those those positions? I wanted to do that because I felt that there's quite a lot of confusion in the kind of popular discourse, media, political discourse around fathers and what we want fathers to be. And I, I felt that sometimes people are using the same language but coming from very different starting points and very different perspectives. So I wanted to kind of separate those out and be clear in my own mind um, about where people are coming from. So I, I think there are kind of two, this is, this is to simplify terribly, and I say this in the book, that I think there are lots of overlaps and nuances in this. But to simplify terribly, I, I think there are there are pressures to involve fathers more with their children from what we might broadly call a small c conservative perspective, which is about and some of that is visible in the what we call the male role model discourse. This idea that unless fathers are are involved in in the upbringing of children, then particularly boys will suffer, might not grow up to be well balanced men, and how they can learn masculinity, uh, and so on. So it's sort of a bit of moral panic around that. Whereas I think those coming from what I've called, and again, they're not very helpful words the progressive perspective and the feminist perspective are perhaps want fathers to be more involved in order to model a different kind of masculinity and a different way of being a man and therefore as i say want more men to be involved in professional childcare as well and in caring professions generally and as i say i think um the weakness of the conservative position is that it has a very fixed idea of what masculinity is it doesn't 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 really have a theory of masculinity as something that's dynamic and changing and therefore it can't really handle the fact that some men and some fathers are actually not good news so when you're thinking about domestic violence and and and, and so on and, and family breakdown it doesn't really have an explanation for why it is that the men actually might abandon their responsibility um, or why women might not want men around in the family. On the other hand, I do think there are some weaknesses in what I've called the progressive position in that I think it's quite hard if you don't think that men and women's care is different, which which some people in that camp would argue, then why should we campaign for more men to be involved in um, care work? Uh, why should we campaign for fathers to have an equal role? Wouldn't two women raise a, a child just as well? So, I, you know, I, I think there are some some interesting st strengths and weakness on, weaknesses on both sides. It, it is very easy for the debates to get very muddy, and I just wanted to sort of clarify some of those sort of starting points and the, and the fact that people are arguing from different premises. Yeah. On the one hand, feminist premise. On the other hand, a much more traditional family premise. Thanks. I think that's a very useful and interesting summary of, of some of those uh, issues. And in your book, you, you end up arguing for what you call a third way. So based on psychosocial perspectives, phenomenological perspectives, if I can say that properly. I find it hard too. <laughs> <laughs> what do you think those add to, to yeah. the debate? Well, that was very much the kind of the final, more speculative and exploratory 
part of the book and I was just trying out ideas. I think there's some work to be done on thinking thing, these, some of these things through. So I, I suppose what I would say is that I worry that sometimes what we've called the, the progressive position around wanting more men to be involved in care maybe makes it too simple and isn't, isn't alive to some of the social and underlying psychological realities that might make that difficult. So um, and this, this gets into very deep water here if you're not careful. But I, I think psychoanalysis can be quite, particularly feminist psychoanalysis, can be helpful in helping us to understand just how long and arduous some of those processes of change might be, that we need to perhaps undo or change um, processes of development in people's you know, gender development which are kind of more deeply embedded than sometimes people who come from what we might call a social constructionist perspective um, might imagine. That you could just do away with gender difference um, and everything will be lovely and there'll be equal numbers of men and women in nurseries and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I think there are some problems with that. So I, I, I just think it's an area that I want to explore further. Um, and do some more research on, really. I've done some work with Joe Warren at uh, Lancaster, who's written a really good book, recent book, about men working in childcare. And she's one of, one of the leading lights in this debate. But it just felt to me that a lot of the male care workers that she was interviewing and a lot of the parents were saying, yes, there is something different that men bring to care. That book found it hard to articulate what that was in a non-sexist way and I think that's the challenge. Are men's and women's care different and is it possible to articulate that in some way without falling back on, on sexist stereotypes? And I, I just think that's a bit of a problem. I haven't got a solution to it but I, I think it is an issue that needs to be teased out a bit more. Yeah, I mean, I think it's it is a really central question, and um, I suspect we could have numerous programs on that over <laughs> many years. It's something we'll, we'll return to. The nuance you describe in all these issues is actually quite hard to grasp hold of, isn't it? And particularly the, the idea about processes of change is, is difficult. But I, I wondered that you mentioned a couple of times the notion of male role models. And okay, I hold up my hand here and say we were involved in a joint project around this. Mm. But I, I wondered if you wanted to say a bit more about what the notion of male role model is taken to mean and, and whether it's actually a useful term at all. Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? We did that research between 2013 and 2015, and I still get people writing to me wanting me to talk about male role models, and they kind of assume that I'm in favour of them. So I have to get right back and say, it's not quite so simple. Are you sure you want me to talk about this? Yeah. Well, um, the project was actually called Beyond Male Role Models, yes. wasn't it? <laughs> Yeah, and I think it was a, a well-chosen title. I think you came up with it, Sandy, but I think because it wasn't saying no to male role models, but it was saying let's just look more closely at this idea and and try and get beyond this, what I think we thought was a kind of a moral panic around absent men. So just to say for those who are not aware, that, and it's hard not to be aware, I think, that in in the past decade or so, a lot of the debate about about men and families uh, um, has been dominated by this discourse, as I said before, that, that boys are particularly affected by the supposed increased absence of fathers from families, the absence of men from primary school teaching and from other welfare and care roles and so on. And again, the kind of assumption is 
that boys need to learn their adult masculine identities through imitation, through imitating um, a positive male role model, and that if they don't, something will go wrong or they'll find negative male role models, turn to antisocial behavior or crime or drugs or whatever. What I think is that, that there's a grain of truth in it, but it's kind of distorted. I think for a start, my criticism would be that I think it, it's based on a, a kind of a social learning model, a behaviorist model, that that's how we we kind of develop our identities by imitation. And I think I'd want to say that the process of becoming a man or becoming a woman or assuming any kind of adult identity is much more complex. It goes back to psychoanalysis. Again, some of those things are unconscious. Some of the things are rooted in your, your relationships of care with your own parents, as kind of Stephen was sort of hinting at in terms of asking me about my own parents earlier. <laughs> Peer relationships have a lot to do with that. As we know, we talked about schooling a bit, media images. It's, it's not as simple as saying if you provide more male teachers or put fathers back in families, then you solve all the problem, the so-called problem of boys. And we know that boys have been subject to this moral panic around mental health, antisocial behaviour, educational achievement and so on. So I think we, what we were saying in the research was it's, it's not as simple as that. But I think we were also saying something positive that was just as important, which was we don't just learn our gender identities from people of the same gender. The danger is to overlook the role of women, um, particularly mothers, but also other female role models who, who might play a positive role in, in boys' development. And Sandy, from a lot of the young men that we interviewed, they talked about having quite close relationships, nurturing relationships with their mothers. They, If they'd become young fathers themselves, they often talked about needing to, because their fathers have been absent or inadequate or neglectful, needing to draw on the example of their mothers for a model of how to care for children. Uh, and I think one of the dangers of the male role model discourse is that it either ignores women, cuts them out of the picture, or it pathologizes their role in boys' lives. And I think one of the things I did in the discourse chapter in that book was to critique an article which seemed to do just that, which seemed to claim that if boys in single parent families had problems it was all the mother's fault for bringing them up wrong mm. and you know never mind the fact that men abandoned them or weren't around or might have actually been a, a negative role model in terms of violence or abuse so I, I think we just wanted to correct that balance and and to mix things up a bit and to say that the process of becoming a man is is very complicated it's not just about the men in your life it's also about the women in your lives and also women and mothers can actually help to develop more positive aspects of masculinity in young men, in boys and young men. Yeah. And often a lot of the the men I've in, um, interviewed who are caring men, who are fathers or, or working in care work, often talk very warmly about the role of not just their mothers, but aunts, grandmothers and other relatives in showing them what it meant to be to be a caring man, really that you can have cross-gender identifications as well as identifying with somebody of the same gender. I mean, well, I think that was a great explanation, really, and far better than I could do, to be honest. But but it was interesting, you're highlighting the links with people who the young men are close to as well. Whereas sometimes, just to add to what you said, we talk about male role models as being David Beckham, for example, someone who's actually really distant, a celebrity figure. Yeah. And there's a bit of a confusion about who a role model actually is. You're absolutely right that a lot of the discourse is around it's important for celebrities to model the right the right kind of masculinity, whatever that is. 
but I don't know. I'm a bit skeptical about the influence of what, as you said, the sort of the distant celebrity figure. I, th I think it's much more about relationship, and that's what I've tried to stress in my work that yeah. we need to look more closely at some of those formative relationships and not just formative ones. I I think one of the positive lessons of that research that we did that is that even if young men have been neglected or had difficult relationships early in their lives that it's it's not the end of the road and, and we, we found some examples of really good sort of social care projects working with young men where they saw examples of care from the workers often male workers and that was often transformative for them so I, I, I gave a talk recently at an event in Scotland, how we can help boys to become caring men. And I, I said that there are two, two or three things, really. But one of them was they need to have an experience of being cared for by, by others and would help if that's by men as well. But also, I think we need to give boys an experience of caring. And I, I think that's, in, in the men I've interviewed, that's been quite formative, that if they've actually had a chance to develop caring aptitudes themselves i've been quite quite come quite interested recently in how in the care is embodied as an embodied practice and i think it is about you know giving boys the opportunity to develop those those aptitudes the habitus if you like to use an academic word of of care yeah yeah i just wanted to ask you a question about research on fatherhood from a historical point of view because i know you're interested in that as well i mean you've written for example about your great grandfather's letters to his son during world war Two. so how do you think well well one sorry how do you think a historical approach can help us understand fathering both both then and now it can help us get away from stereotyping the past i think when i first started working in this area i i kind of fell into the assumption that we were the first generation to talk about caring fatherhood and it's interesting in 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 talking to to fathers or talking to young men about fatherhood as a researcher that's often how they position things that my dad did it this way but I want to be different and that may have been true in their individual cases but it's very easy to fall into the trap of thinking that fatherhood in the past was all about distance absence discipline and everything else, all the caring stuff was left to mums. I think there's been some really interesting historical work recently on fatherhood in the 19th century, fatherhood in the 20th century, which has kind of complicated the picture a bit. I mean, it hasn't completely done away with the, the former picture, but it's shown that there have always been men who have actually been more closely involved in the care of their children than we've imagined for, for all sorts of different reasons in that in that um article about my great-grandfather i i argued that his sort of methodist beliefs were one source of his loving and caring fatherhood but there were other other reasons political reasons and, and all sorts of other reasons that enabled men to to, to behave in, in particular ways our picture of the past is changing and it's important to do that because I think there are resources from past generations of fatherhood. What we've got to get away from is sort of a linear idea of, of progress and that things are just getting better and better. That prevents us from understanding why things are the way they are. So one sort of idea around this is that actually it was probably a lot to do with industrialization. The reason that men 
men became associated with this separation from the home and that actually before industrialization it was just taken for granted that men would be working from home and therefore they'd be around children um, and, and women were working from the home as well so roles were much more distributed and I think also a sense of history can help us realize that social class often had a lot to do with some of these stereotypes and that as we know from from today as well for a lot of families both partners having a job was just the way it had to be just to survive and therefore people made their own arrangements around care which didn't fall into the male provider female stay-at-home mum stereotype uh, and I think we see that with working class families today that often that's where you can find new fatherhood being worked out more than in the sort of the, the progressive middle class if you like or as much as in the the progressive middle class just because people have to make those arrangements in order to fit care around work. I should say that you've also edited a book on this as well and the title is it Fathers and Forefathers Men in Genealogical Perspective yeah so and it's all available online so if anybody wants to look that up. I, I wanted to bring us a bit uh, back into the present day and just thinking about like the, the different pieces of work that you've been involved in are there any particular policy changes which you would like to see happen you'd like to see the the UK government introduce in relation to issues around fatherhood and uh, men caring for children. I think there have been some positive changes the whole sort of shared parenting leave and so on. I, I think the, the challenge is not so much in legislation but making legislation work. Um, Sandy and I have both been to very interesting European seminars where you see how different the picture is in different European countries and I, I think what those the more positive examples say from Scandinavian countries show is that legislation is only going sort of half the distance. So part of it's about legislation, part of it's about the kind of legislation and making it sort of easier and possible for men to to take on these roles but part of it part of it's about changing ideas and changing assumptions as well so there's a role for for education yeah i find that fascinating the idea about like how could what are some of the different ways in which we could try and within education for example different levels of education like engage boys more in in different kind of caring activities mm. for example i think there's a lot of scope there isn't there to be explored uh, but yeah uh, and in terms of like kind of recent developments in this area in society have there been any contemporary kind of changes or developments in relation to gender and the issues which we've been talking about perhaps is there one thing which particularly concerns you and, and one thing which gives you a source of kind of optimism and, and hope I think the research that I've done and some of the research that Sandy's been involved in as well with me on this with young men both gives me cause for hope and also challenges me and makes me think we've still got a long way to go again I was talking about this at the Scottish event I was at the other week. On the negative side, I think it's quite dispiriting when you still find, if you talk to some groups of young men, there are still hang-ups around gender relationships and still some sort of traditional masculine ideas around manning up, being a man, hiding your emotions and so on. And I think that feeds into the whole concern about men's uh, and young men's mental health. There's been obviously been enormous change, but I think I think we need to remember that change isn't uniform across all social groups. Both of the research projects Sandy and I have been involved in together show this very clearly that things differ enormously 
both in terms of social class and geographical location, and that there are still boys growing up in some social settings, cultural settings, who are still sort of trapped by fairly conventional expectations about what it means to be a man. So part of that's about emotion and you know whether it's okay to express emotion and, and seek help for issues. Part of it is also about attitudes to women and girls and coming out from our interviews even in recent years there's still some quite worrying things. Sometimes resentment and kind of backlash really. Uh, I remember some young men that I interviewed in South London who there was quite a lot of resentment about what they felt was, you know, gender equality has gone too far. You know, it's gone, it's swung the other way. But at the same time, and, and again, it goes back, sorry, as an academic, I'm always saying everything's complicated, but <laughs> but it is. But at the same time, in the, in the same interviews, you know, men, young men can talk the talk and young men are getting more, young fathers are getting more involved in the care of their children. I think it's, it was quite heartening to hear young men talk about their aspirations for fatherhood and seeing fatherhood as an important part of their masculine identity. So in the, in the sort of the generation that's coming up, I think there are both these causes for hope. Ideas have taken root, ideas they've picked up through the media or through education about being a different kind of man, a more caring man and involved father have taken root but there are still pressures to conform to quite traditional aspects of masculinity in particular social groups so I, th I think we need to realize that change doesn't affect all groups equally or at the same time and I think we need to be aware of that and sensitive to that and not necessarily condemn young men who express those attitudes out of hand but to kind of get alongside them and to work with them and to understand where they're coming from that's the challenge mm, yeah definitely definitely and in relation to that the last question i suppose is is do you consider yourself a feminist and what does what does that mean to you now, i knew you were going to ask that question i've thought about this a lot i don't know if it's it's a term that i would find useful well i, th I think men can be pro-feminist but i think there are so many debates within feminism at the moment that you'd have to define what you meant by feminist and it made me think of a sort of an online spat I had with somebody from a sort of men's rights background a few years ago, talked about being a non-feminist. And I just said, why would you want to call yourself that? Why would you want to position yourself against one of the most positive social movements of the last half century? You might have questions about some aspects of feminists or some things feminists say or you might want to identify yourself with a particular branch of feminism but why would you want to place yourself outside that <clears throat> so i suppose again giving the sort of the um the nuanced academic answer rather than the straight answer which is what i seem to be good at doing today i i would want to say that feminism has been enormously important to me um i i think men who work in this area can't but be indebted to feminism. It wasn't for the second wave of feminism, there wouldn't be all this work on men and masculinity. It comes directly out of that. It depends on feminist ideas, fundamental feminist assumptions about gender equality. But I'm, I suppose I just want to raise the question about how, how relevant or important is it for men to call themselves feminists? I don't know. So it's not a term I use, but if anyone asks me, I'd say, yes, I'm broadly pro-feminist. You know, are there any particular messages that you would like young men to, to hear more in relation to feminism and gender equality and masculinity? I think we need to find a language for talking to 
boys and men about those ideas that doesn't immediately put up shutters or resistance. I think there's a danger that, although I think the work with boys in schools is really good, I think there's a danger that too much sort of high-level messaging can turn boys and, and men off the whole area. So I think maybe going in and saying, today we're going to talk about gender equality or feminism, it might make them think, this is not for me, it doesn't concern me. So I, I think we need to find a language. Masculinism is associated with men's rights, but we, do, we don't have a term for talking about the advantages of, of gender equality for boys and men. And I think that's what we need to do. Um, we need to get alongside boys, understand where they're coming from, tell them they're okay, being a boy is all right. The media messages, you're getting this misrepresentation of kind of anti-sexist work that says it's all about putting boys down and boys becoming more like girls. That's wrong. We're not saying that. Um, so kind of understanding where they're coming from. And, and I think it is about finding a language to explain to boys that <clears throat> gender equality is good for mm -hmm. you. I mean, that's going back to my own history. That That's and I'm sure for, for you guys as well, that that was what was important for me, that it was kind of giving me permission to be who I wanted to be and to break out of stereotypical ideas of what kind of man I had to be. And I think we need to show boys that that can be true for them as well, that this is liberation for them as well. Oh, thank you so much, Martin. That's been so interesting. It's been great hearing you talk about your work and also your, your life and how that intersects with your work as well. So thank you so much for coming on our little now on men podcast and i look forward to further collaboration in future it's been a pleasure sandy and Stephen, and good luck with the podcast well it was fascinating to talk to martin there and to hear more about his work we hope you found it interesting as well and was there anything that came out of that conversation sandy which kind of struck you in particular yes i really enjoyed that conversation with martin and um what i like about what he was saying and his, his work is how he takes some of the sort of commonplace notions of what fatherhood is about and he unpicks them and actually explores those issues underlying and gives it a great depth and I, I think that's a really important thing to do. I think it's far too easy to have simplistic spray-on solutions to things whereas actually what's going on in terms of how people see themselves, the process of change and so on is actually quite complicated. I know he said yes I'm an academic and this is what I do but but actually, he showed in his interview what value that, that has. Yeah, what he was saying is really helpful to just start to unpick some of these commonplace assumptions and stereotypes. People aren't good or bad. We're usually a, a mixture of the two. So the idea that somebody can be purely a, a good role model or a bad role model, in reality, we are all much more complex than that. Because we do hear these kinds of messages quite a lot, don't we, at certain times? You know, coming from politicians, for example, the idea that we need, young men need these male role models. I mean, that also made me think about, you often hear this idea, don't you, that it needs to be men talking to young men and boys about issues like gender equality. But I think the, the, the reality is much more complex than that, isn't it? it, it that actually, having those conversations in all sorts of different ways can be useful. I think it was also really interesting in pointing out the, the sort of process of learning about gender, that it isn't just a matter of imitating somebody in a position of authority or, or even somebody you're, you're close to or a celebrity or whatever but actually gender is is something that's negotiated and uh, performed and that's primarily how we're learning about 
gender, not just through looking at David Beckham and thinking, I'll, I'll copy him. So I thought he explained that that very well. And, and I certainly hold to that view as well. Yeah, yes. And for example, if we talk about like learning about ideas and norms connected to masculinity, that's not just like a one way process, whereby you just absorb those ideas like a sponge, and then you go out and put those ideas into practice. It is a much more complicated process, which people challenge in in all sorts of different ways don't they and I suppose one of the tasks for us is to think about how can we encourage people to question some of those ideas they they hear more more than they already do. The other thing that was really nice was the way he linked his personal history to his work he clearly thought quite a lot about how he was parented how he was brought up the different influences that that were brought to bear on his understanding of, of being a boy being a man becoming a father to be honest i think that is is one of the sort of key issues which we're trying to explore in in the now and men podcast the link between that personal stuff and how they play out for you and also how they're influential at political level so i yeah. thought that was very important too Yes, absolutely. Yes. And that's the kind of theme which we'll pick up on again and again throughout the the podcast series, isn't it? About how this work, these issues connect to us both, you know, in our personal lives, as well as in the political and professional aspects of the the work that people that we're interviewing are doing. So what's next? One thing we should just mention at this point is that actually uh, around the same time that the, the podcast is being launched, we've got a book coming out as well ourselves, which is being launched by Policy Press. And so that is called Men's Activism to End Violence Against Women, Voices from Spain, Sweden and the UK. As Stephen has hinted at, it's based on based on our research with men who actively speak out about men's violence against women. And so it explores their experiences of activism, how they got involved in the first place. And also, hopefully, it helps us to understand how we can get more men to be involved in this area. Um, and so uh, that was authored by Professor Nicole Westmarland, who helped to set up this podcast, by Sandy and myself, together with researchers based in Sweden and Spain as well, Lynn Egberg-Holmgren, Anna-Lena Alpqvist, and Custodio Delgado Valbuena. Yeah, so the focus of the book, I suppose, shares actually quite a few similarities with, with Now and Men as a podcast, looking at the kind of personal lives of, of men, in this case, involved in this kind of anti-violence activism and thinking about what can we learn from that to perhaps try and engage more men uh, and boys in the speaking out and taking action for gender equality. For now, we'll stop there and thank you very much for listening. Thank you very much for listening to this episode of Now and Men. Any references we mentioned will all be in the show notes. You're welcome to email us at nowandmen at gmail.com if you'd like to ask us questions or suggest a guest. And we're really keen that the podcast should be listened to by as many people as possible to encourage more men to think about issues of masculinity and gender equality. So please do follow Now and Men so the latest episode drops in your podcast feed as soon as it's released. You can also leave a review and share it among your friends and colleagues and look out for our next episode coming soon. So you take care, take care of each other, and speak to you again soon.